I don't want to stick out. You know, I want things that I do to stick out, but I want it to be a team effort. But that's a very Chicago attitude to have, which is why, like, I will never be rich. For folks who don't know, what is Kimski? It's a Korean-Polish street food spot. It's on the south side of Chicago. It's attached to a neighborhood staple bar called Maria's Packaged Goods and Community Bar. It's a counter service place. We service Maria's, and we use Maria's as, a, as our dining room. There's no servers. I want it to be affordable, portable. It's hard to explain. So I do want to be conscious about our waste of our food that we're serving, our ingredients. So it is like a street food spot with ethics and morals. Welcome to Deeper Dish. On this episode of Deeper Dish, we have one of our most colorful guests ever. I know we're only four, five, six episodes deep, but Chef Juan of Kimski is just a different experience. I don't even know how to intro this, so I'm just going to let you guys listen to Chef Juan go in and talk about his DJing, his art, and I can't even explain it. If you normally listen to this podcast with kids around, this may be the episode where you listen to it with your headphones on or away from your kids. Fair warning. Enjoy. Born in South Korea. Okay. Grew up in West Rogers Park, went to high school in the Burbs, and then came immediately back for college. Yeah, which, which Burb? Uh, Des Plaines. Oh, okay, just, just north of here. Yeah. It's funny that I always mention this because that's like the fucking first question. Is that main? Is that main west, main south, main east, main east? Okay, yeah, the ghetto one. I, I no, actually, know. main west know. was ghetto because there's a fucking trailer park right next to that. If you remember, like I went to high school there, yes. But I never hung out there. That's my little defense mechanism when I get asked about, like, where'd you grow up? I'm like, well, eight years here, four years in the suburbs. I didn't really hang out there. And then I've lived in the city ever since. So total 35 years. And I remember some people rolling their eyes at me when I tell them I went to Maine East. I'm like, bitch, where the fuck did you go to school? Where the fuck did you go to grammar school? Oh, you went over to that junior high. And then you went to high school. And then you went somewhere else for college and then moved back. And you're 22 now. You're trying to fucking call a 37-year-old out about how you Ubered your, you gave your Uber driver a fucking set of directions to get to a shitty bar in River North. You're trying to fucking compare that to me? Right, right. Get the fuck out of my pool. Right, I can't. Right. I don't have that authority to do that. <laughs> However, oh. this is what goes on in my head. However, we're all just on our phones anyways at the end of the day, so it doesn't really fucking right, matter. Right. So what was that? what was that like? What was what like? High, high school. Oh, I mean, high school is awkward because I grew up in the city, you know, school structure out in the suburbs. You go to grammar school all together in a set community. Yeah. And then you go to junior high together. That's when, like, you know, they all start to realize that, you know, you get boners for no fucking reason. And you guys, you know, all revel in it together. It's like this fucking massive bonding moment. I mean, girls start to realize that, you know, they like boys and that bullshit. And... I missed out on that because I grew up in the city. I went yeah. to school in the city. And my parents made the conscious decision to move to the suburbs because they thought that we would have a better life over there. Even though the neighborhood we grew up in was unincorporated Desplaines, which is even more ghetto than the actual city, <laughs> Rogers Park that we were growing at. It was just weird. Like It's maybe 10 miles northwest of where we were. Fucking world apart. Like There's no sidewalks. Pace buses run on schedule. 
it was very scheduled and it was just strange my brother and I couldn't just roam about because everything was a subdivision everything just right. looked similar right there's no walking around you, no there's no walking around there really aren't any sidewalks there you know we look like vagabonds when we walked on the side of the road <laughs> you know where like sidewalks should yeah. be it was awkward for me because I you know I just didn't grow up with these kids they grew up within a certain income and a certain means and a certain lifestyle and I just I didn't bond with that and I grew up with all my friends were like Latino they were black they right. were Asian they were Greek yep. Serbian like, when I went to high school, I was like, you're all just fucking white to me right. and shitty, <laughs> snotty fucking Koreans that hate my yeah. guts because you don't know who the fuck I am. Right, right. So I talk, didn't go to school. Can you finger talk, bang you, you know? You, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about that? Because one, I have two really good friends that are Korean. One is from St. Louis and one is from Pennsylvania or something like that. And they, they come from traditional Korean households. Did you come from a, like a... You come in the house, you take your shoes off. Yeah, pretty traditional. I mean, you got to understand that my family is from Korea. Only person in our family that can actually become president now is my nephew because he was born here. The rest of us were born in Korea, South Korea. You know, my parents instilled values, not necessarily like, you know, we had to wear the the traditional hanbok or whatever Mm -hmm, it is. mm -hmm. We just always worked really hard. We didn't eat like American food. The reason why I lived here all my life is like we, my brother and I helped our parents out at the store. I guess that's traditional Korean American shit is like you're yeah. you're an entrepreneur in a flea market if you grew up in Chicago. <laughs> like all this does tie in when I was younger helping out my parents. My dad did embroidery, which is letters. He did letters like freehand on a fucking machine, which was insane. And he totally undercharged. It was because like the the neighborhood we were in were like was kinda poor. So they didn't want to pay a certain amount and he just put himself in that market and it was unfortunate because we could have fucking banked on it because it's like a specific trade. I noticed all these other names being on a thing. I was like, what the hell does that mean? That's not a normal name. What are these made up words? They're all graffiti names. Mm. And graffiti writers like used to come to my dad's shop, guys oh. that I like would see and be like Oh, it all makes sense when I was in high school and getting into that art form. I was like, oh, shit. That motherfucker totally came into my shop and tried to scam my dad on a couple dollars because they were cheap. Uh-huh. Oh, no shit. Cool. And then growing up in the city, like, I remember when I was starting doing graffiti, like, these guys would be like, damn, that was your fucking dad. That dude was the shit, you know? <laughs> he, and, was giving us, yeah. he was giving us cheap work. And yeah. it's funny because a lot of restaurants came to where my dad's spot because they yeah. knew, they heard about him across yeah. the city. And how he's underpriced. And how he's underpriced. And, you know, they would get their chef coats done. They would get, Malnati's was one of our first big clients. Okay. When they were only existed in Lincolnwood, Rick and um, I forgot the other son's name. They would come to my dad's store yeah. in like kind of the ghetto of Rogers Park right, right. near Evanston, right. like super fucking ghetto back then. And they would like be like, hey, we got some, you know, chef coats that we needed hats. And right. my dad would do it. Fucking R. Kelly came when he was working at Foot Locker in Evanston when it was still the hood over there. When he was still with the public announcement back in the early 90s, late 80s, he came and got his first tour hat done by my dad. And I remember me freaking out as a child because I was like, oh, so much work for my dad. Like, who is this fucking guy? Like, it was all these little letters. It says R. Kelly in the public announcement tour, blah, blah, blah. He got like 70 of these hats done. I was like, man, fuck that guy. Thank you, my dad worked way too hard. He's taking advantage of like the amount of letters you could put on a hat, you know? Who knew? Later on. I remember seeing that hat when he got famous, and I was yeah. like, oh, shit, that's the same fucking dude. Right, that's crazy. Right. All right, you, you got the chef thing going on. You've got the graffiti thing going on. You, you dabble in a little media. Two of those things sound like they started 
or were influenced by what you saw in your dad's shop? Is that a, I mean... Yeah, that's a fair assessment. You know, I, I guess growing up, I just didn't, you know, think about it because, you know, children are pretty stupid. <laughs> they they soak in a, a lot of shit without realizing that it might affect them in the future. It's not yep. children's responsibilities to recognize those immediate things immediately. Right, no doubt. It's funny, you know, I used to love mixtapes. There used to be like a ghetto-ass mixtape shop right next to my dad's shop and it was dj sneak's brother that ran it and i was like fucking hey that's dj sneak's little brother you know and he would like give me hot mix 11 like bad boy bill mixtape julian jumper prez mixtapes and shit and you know i dj too and it's just like how the fuck did all these three things converge you know back then with you know i didn't even think about it even when i was in high school and i was like why am i doing letters like why why am i into this oh it's because yeah. like you know my locker partner back in grammar school his older brother loved hip hop, started doing the graffiti thing, and my dad did letters. And I just found out that my biological father, who passed away when I was really young, did letter work in Korea, like script cool. shit. It's like a movie in a sense of like, you know, there's all these scenes of like influences and shit, mm -hmm. and then you never really realize it until like got a lot of ingredients in there. I, I guess those are all elements that kind of compiled and kind of influenced me in a way. You came back to Chicago to go to school after high school. I was a fucking theater major. I was a theater nerd in high school, my junior, senior year. Techie. Yeah, I was a stage manager. I used to go to the Second City when I was young for classes before I could get into the actual Second City. They had a player's workshop. Sure. So I used to go to classes there and do improv. I actually loved comedy back then. You know, I thought I was going to be an actor, and it just so happened that it was very, like, kind of nepotism and, high, you know, high school bullshit. So I was like, you know what? I, I think my expertise might be used. My grades didn't show it, but I was organizing things I like to do mm -hmm. or were interested in, you know, yep. like any creative art kid. Sure. Freshman and sophomore year, I was just, you know, just trying to survive high school. I didn't really make any friends. And seriously, I was that one kid that sat by myself in a mm -hmm. fucking cafeteria. I mm -hmm. was that kid. It made me think like I was not a good person or something mm -hmm. or like I wasn't mm -hmm. I wasn't clicking with these kids you right, know so right. that's when I started doing extracurricular activities I kind of took it upon myself to be like well, maybe yep. maybe it's me maybe it's not these kids you know maybe it's me not doing yep. my due diligence and you know putting myself out there I would always visit my friends in the city still mm -hmm. and work in my dad's shop on the weekend so I would always have access to going to the city and being exposed to that life still I really applied myself to theater stuff because the the people were really nice. You know, you know techies, they're just they're a little nerdy, but they're really really nice. Lots kids. of enthusiasm, lots, lots of enthusiasm, passion, lots of passion, and none of them really want to pursue theater. And I I kind of like really fell in love with it. The organization, kind of the directing part. You know, stage managing was a lot of work. You know, you were the man behind the scenes that called all the shots. Honestly, blocking and cues, blocking suck. and cues, lighting lighting shit. At the same time, I was still doing art. I was still doing all the creative stuff that I wanted to do. My uh, art director let me design part of the set. Let me do the cutouts and shit like that, which yeah. was awesome. They let me direct. They let me act and direct in something. Mm -hmm. So I kind of saw these doors, doors opening. And then I thought, you know, through college, I thought that maybe that's what I would want to do. And I got into a prestigious school. I got into the DePaul Theater School. Do a lot of work, shitty ACT scores. I knew I couldn't go out of state because I had to help my parents out on the weekend. So I just kind of like, well, what's the best theater school in the city? Mm -hmm. It was DePaul. Pretty they legit. were actually one of the best theater schools in the country. I was like, I'm going to gun for that. I'm going to apply myself to get in there. And I did for lighting. And I quickly realized that the best theater school in the city had really shitty 
kids in the program that I never wanted to work with. You know, this was back in 98. And they were fucking dicks back then, you know, without social media. I mean, for you to be a dickbag and so into your fucking self before social media, like, man, you're a piece of shit. It was like high school all over again. I couldn't get along with these kids. I grew up in the city, and I was in a city school, and all these out-of-towners, I couldn't make friends in college again. It was like fucking high school all over. So I kind of quit that, and then I took a year off, and then I, I knew I needed a college degree. I don't know why my parents told me I needed this shit. And I went to Columbia for radio. And I got a degree in radio back then. And I was like, oh, shit. XM Radio came out. This is useless. But I have a degree in it. I have a degree in something. And then culinary school happened when the fucking recession hit. I, you know, I used to work for the ABA. I was a catering coordinator. I really loved food back then. ABA meaning American, American Bar, Bar Association. Association? Yeah. I used to be a catering coordinator there. Yeah. Oh, dude, that place is the worst. I would cut my desk up. I try to get fired by playing porn in my fucking cubicles. So I could like get unemployment. I would just do anything I could to get fired. So are you there. saying if we work for the ABA, it's totally cool to watch porn at our desks? Like, we- I didn't fucking get fired after watching porn. It was insane. I did. I really did do a good job there. <laughs> I did a good job. They took me. To, they took me down to HR with my manager who was right next to my cubicle. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I must have a problem. You know, <laughs> they're like, they're like, well, you just- actually do a really good job. And normally, we would fire anyone else, but we're going to give you another chance. I'm like, thank you so much. Man, I'm, thank you for this opportunity. Like, wow. I will make sure right. to try my hardest to let yeah. you the so fuck just, down. Just, just so people know, the American Bar Association is headquartered in Chicago, 321 downtown. North Clark. Yeah. 16th yeah. floor. Right, right. Catering, catering coordinator for in-house events, motherfucker. <laughs> and, and, and local porn legend. Yeah, yeah. I used to show up to that work fucking just completely annihilated. I used to do blow uh, while I work. <laughs> I don't give a fuck about that place. Well, let's. You said so. You did the radio thing. Yeah. Then, I mean, what was the catalyst to get you to say, "All right, radio not happening." ABA. What got you to there? After the radio thing, I quickly realized that there were no a. The music field was complete shit. Commercial radio was garbage. Yeah. My internship was at another coveted place. It was B96. I used to intern there mm-hmm. under the uh, producer guy, which was, you know, he made the commercials. Fucking terrible in life. Great at his job. Told me, Eddie and, told me some sh- weird shit about Eddie and Jobo, and I was like, I don't want to be in this fucking environment. So they would get demos, you know, and I would see the box of records, like 12 inches, and I was DJing at the time still. And I was like, damn, fucking you got Jurassic 5 here? They send you shit here? And you got, like, fucking Big L records here? Like, this is dope. Gangstar records? Like, why aren't you playing this shit? Like, well, we don't have to. Thanks. And I saw their playlist. What was her name? Angie, whatever the fuck her name is. She was a fucking shitty disc jock. I saw her playlist once, like, when I was just kind of, like, roaming around. 15 songs for a 24-hour period. Because they all got paid out. Everything that was unethical about radio, they got fucking paid. Everything that's illegal about it, they were practicing it. I'm like, this isn't a field I want to be in. Like, I actually love music. I actually love the culture of music. This is bullshit that you guys are making millions of dollars off of nothing. After I realized, like, there's no job in the radio market, my major, I was like, well, oh, I was just going to do art. I was just going to paint. I took a little, another hiatus and just helping my parents out. Just trying to figure shit out. I was doing a lot of graffiti then. You doing murals? Are you tagging? I was doing a lot of illegal graffiti. Like actual graffiti. Shit that's illegal. That's real graffiti to me. What is so illegal about this illegal graffiti? Painting on shit that doesn't belong to me. 
<laughs> oh, so are you painting on like monuments? Painting, are you painting on no, government buildings? I'm, I'm painting on the train lines. I'm sure. painting trains. I'm painting freight trains. I'm painting fucking tagging every single dumpster I see. Every single walk I do, like markers are dried out by the time my walk is over when I'm young. Cool. Climbing fucking the X's on the on the on the L. That's how you get up to the the train mm-hmm. tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Climb the fucking X's. Slide in between the thing. You climb a fence. That's all illegal graffiti to me. You know, we take rides. We see we see a box truck. Pull over. We're gonna do this. We're gonna hit this real quick. Awesome. We do freight trains. Oh shit! There's, look at that shit over there. Let's do that spot. I was young. You know, it was like my metabolism was amazing. <laughs> it was great. I could fucking do that shit. I was doing a little bit of art at the time too, and then. I was putting on shows with friends, like underground shows. This is when the Hot House still existed back okay. in South Loop on Balbo. So we, my friend and I, we would put on some shows. You know, we promoted parties. We did, you know, we threw a lot of house parties. We were those kids that just like would convince stupid college kids to like lend us their house, and we would charge five dollars for a cup. Good for you. We like here's Good twenty you. bucks. You can invite all your friends. You'll have a great time. We brought our turntables. We were provide the music. We were hustling, you know? It was great. It was a great time period. It was like this weird transitional period where you could do shit like that in Chicago, and it was fun. You know, I met this girl, and, you know, she she was fucked up. I was kind of fucked up, and needed to make some money because I was like, we should get married. You know, I was young. Wait, wait, how did you meet her? Uh, she was the she was the door girl at uh, fucking Hot House. <laughs> mm. She was a University of Chicago student at the time. So pretty, pretty she, smart, pretty bright. Pretty fucking hot, uh, if anything. And I was like, you're really attractive. This Go is crazy. right past the intelligence. Let's get yeah. straight to the facts. Uh, once I found out she was a university of I was like, oh, my God. You're actually amazingly bright and talented and smart and psychotic because you're good at all these things mm-hmm. and you're intelligent. You're hot and whatever. And then after that, I just got into responsibility mode. I thought I had to get this job, and then I would eat a lot of shitty food. This is all part of the culinary thing, too. Like I, I was a catering coordinator, which means I was, my responsibility was to bring in new caterers. Eat everything. Bring in, eat try everything, try everything. everything, just to make sure that clients have all a variety of tastes. No one there knew what the fuck they were doing food-wise. They just they looked at cost more than anything, yeah, like definitely. a lot of people do, and that's yeah. fine. I get it. I eat a lot of shitty food, a lot of fucking shitty food, like... I learned a lot about what to charge, how to charge things, and to be able to taste like sugar. Sugar is such a fucking Jesus, you know? Like, no wonder everyone's so diabetic and obese here. Like, they put sugar in savory foods, you know? Like, if yeah. something's too salty, that's like an old, you know, chef secret. It's like, if something's too salty, you put a little sugar in it. Once in a while mistake. It shouldn't be practiced every single fucking time. I mean, fermentation happened because, you know, someone discovered, like, oh, we could, if you put salt on this shit, you can make it last longer and we won't die of hunger, right? With modern times and like American food and shitty catering food, it's like just fucking throw sugar on it. They won't be able to taste how close it is to rotting. Throw vinegar <laughs> on it so that they won't smell. It'll, it'll mask it and just put some more salt on it. You know, use that shitty fucking dry pasta from three years ago that we're not gonna toss out because it's gonna save us money in the long run. And we could charge our clients. $15 a person for this shitty pasta bar. That's a similar notion to when I was reading like Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. He was speaking about how he said like never order fish on a Tuesday or on a Monday or whatever. That is correct in a sense. I mean, that book was is pretty outdated now. I sure. Mean, that came out around 2000, I think. Yeah. And he was talking about like 80s and 90s. Right. His experiences. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, in a sense, like a lot of specials are designed around food that is that will eventually go bad. 
we just have to get rid of it. It's not like I don't think a lot of restaurants practice that. Some some places do, I'm sure, just to cut costs. But I mean, that that just makes sense. I mean, honestly, the way we run our specials is like we do a different special daily. But if we have a lot of food left over from a previous special, I'm gonna run it again because it's still good. I'm not gonna serve rotting food, you know. But like, I will still run the next day. And if because p- customers actually ask me for previous specials from weeks ago, still mm. they'll be like, "Hey, do you have that cheeseburger?" I'm like, "Bitch, it's Friday. We run that <laughs> shit every Tuesday. You know this shit." But if she came on Wednesday, I'd be like, "Yeah, we actually have a couple burgers. I'll make that for you. Fuck it, you know." That's cool. I want you to try it, you know. But I'm not gonna. You know, keep running that special up till Thursday or Friday when I think it's gonna, you know, it's on that border, it's on that line, that fine line of like it's gonna rot <laughs> or sure. it's rotting, and add sugar and vinegar to it and be yeah. like, you can't even taste the difference. Yeah, um, you shit your brains out, but you probably need to lose some weight anyway. So <laughs> fuck you. You know, you're welcome. I don't do that. I do. You know, we are a street food spot, but uh, you know, I do have. Unfortunately, I do have ethics, which is why I'll never make money. Man, <laughs> you know, in this field, right. I have morals and ethics, and I care about what people eat. Unfortunately, uh, despite how much of an asshole I sound like, it sucks because, you know, you do want to run a successful business, and being in that neighborhood and being of, you know, like I know how that neighborhood eats. I know what's around me. Mm-hmm. I have to be conscious and aware of pricing things, without freaking people out. All the cooks and I were always like, man, this is like unfair because, in a sense, because Logan Square prices, you know, you have right. West Loop prices. Yeah. I'm like, God damn. Uh, what neighborhood are you talking about? Bridgeport, Chicago. South side, in, you know, a little bit past Pilsen. I would say Bridgeport starts around like 26th Street, right? 26th Street yeah. and on. All the way up to like almost Pershing. You need to start back of yards over there. And so the people that don't live in Chicago that are trying to put this on the map, just just imagine Chicago just hugs the lake. And downtown is the center of Chicago, and this is about ten to fifteen minutes, depending on traffic. Yeah, it's south, five miles south, right? And south the most city. important thing, Bridgeport is synonymous with the Chicago White Sox. Yes, that's their home. That's where the Sox play. Northside's where the Cubs play. Your neighborhood is in the process of changing, though. Oh, absolutely. So you, you're talking about price points now. I could come back five to ten years from now and say. Those price points that you want. Oh, I'm going to fucking rape you on that on the price of five years. <laughs> so the, for the past several years, if not a couple decades, yep. it's definitely had that middle class. I mean, it's known for being an uh, Irish and Italian working class neighborhood. And now it's starting to gentrify. When I was going to Maria's, which is the bar attached to Kimsky, which mm-hmm. is our, our boss, all in the same parent company, yep. I would get food from Pleasant House. And I loved Pleasant House. Sure. Their food was fucking the shit. They made everything from scratch. You know, they still do to this day. That's a joint right next door. It used to be right next door to Maria's, which is our dry storage now. And apparently we all do drugs in there sometimes. Um, It was amazing then because I would, you know, get wasted and be like, oh, man, we could get this fucking awesome British style savory pie next door. I never cared about the price. But, you know, thinking about it now, I I would spend an easy like 12 to 13 dollars for a pie. And that didn't come with the chips and the gravy. I just came with a little side salad. And I thought nothing of it because I came from, you know, I live in the north side. I grew up in the north side. But I just saw it as like, oh, this is what it costs. You know, because I know they make everything from scratch. You were getting a good value. You thought you were getting value for what? Yeah, I'd say normal. Yeah. You know, I, I'd say this is what probably they needed to charge, right? And on their specials, like they had a daily special, mm-hmm. the fish and chips. The Sunday carving series was like 15 to $20. But I thought nothing of it again. Because right. I'm like, oh, I'm all the way down in Bridgeport. How often am I here? Treat Apparently yourself. once a week. <laughs> I'm down here. I'll just get it because it's special to me. 
But then again, I come from a different field, of, a train of thought, where I loved food. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, they're 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 making it from scratch because I know they are, because that's how <laughs> art and the gang are. They care about food as well. But like, what is it? And it's familiar. So the neighborhood loved it because it was familiar to them. They're like, they love pies. They love meat. Mm. They love these things. They're associated with it immediately because it's some of the stuff that they grew up with. Like it's a pot pie, essentially. Fast forward a couple years later, you open a Korean Polish spot. Like all of a sudden, everyone's a fucking expert on what you should pay for a certain thing because down the street is Maxwell Street shit. I know where they get those frozen. Right. We get our shit made down the street at Mikowski's. It's our recipe. Fresh. I get the fucking buns from Pilsen daily. I have to put an order in every fucking day. We make our own mustard. We get our fucking crouchy. It's my recipe with co-op way up north. It's our recipe that we develop before we open for months. We had to test it out. Right. That's what you're paying for. And right. like, it does taste good. I listened to other people's podcasts and there was a, I forget the chef's name and, and, and I apologize, but he said that there's, no, it actually was Freakonomics. Is like, there's this, this thought process that if I buy a, taco they don't care what went into making that taco you can have a high-end taco they 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 just want to they just want to pay what they think they should pay for a taco even though that taco is like the highest end of ingredients and the meats and all this stuff like you said it's fresh and they put in all this research people don't care they're like that's a taco i just want to pay x for it versus if you put that same stuff on a plate in a what people deem as like a really nice over-the-top restaurant they're like oh i'll pay 80 bucks for that and it's like the same exact thing it's it's the same parallel as you know selling artwork right people are blinded by familiarity and things that they're used to and they'll definitely form their opinion and immediately tell you what's up with like how things should be priced it's like well i don't fucking get to tell you what you're worth at your job at your shitty fucking job. <laughs> so why is it that you get to do that for my job and my profession and my actual passion? If your passion is to sit in a fucking desk for eight hours, I will never judge that. But it's not your passion. You just have a fucking job and you make money. Some people make really good money at it. Some people don't. But like at the same token, I don't I'm not gonna sit here and be like Man, you know, I really wish like you get paid a little less for the fucking job quality you do because I see that you're fucking off on Facebook at your cubicle anyways. <laughs> so, you, you know, like how, how do you balance? Yeah, I'm going to throw a crazy idea. The locals, you charge one thing for and people like me to come down there. You have like the the the, the unneighborhood fee. We would close down in a week. Would you? Yeah. No, that doesn't <laughs> that, violate consumer I know. rights. That's illegal. Yeah. That's illegal. You know what? It's funny you say that. Actually, I just had a conversation with one of my friends. He was like, "Why don't you have like one menu that states the shitty non-organic stuff that you get uh, pricing wise, and then have another <laughs> menu that shows where where your chicken wings come from, like why it's ethically, you know, blah blah blah, and then." See what people choose. Once they see everything right, in front of their right. face, you can say, "Hey, I'm giving you a student price, right?" Right. Like if there, there are sometimes like if you live in the city, you get the city price, and then if you live outside the city, like if you go to the Arboretum and you pay, you live out there. You're like, "Oh, you you, you live out here, so you get it's." There's got to be a it's way like to how work the museum out. does. Yeah. how they have free days. But we for pay residents. T- we pay taxes for that. And sure, no, the, you, the city's not giving you all anything and you're not giving the this city. is this isn't a new struggle for anything as far as like any creative sound photography even sports athletes getting underpaid for certain things you know like you work all your life playing for free 
and you get that big contract. But all that shit comes with a price. Nothing, nothing's different with food, honestly. Like, we you know, this is why we do drugs and drink a lot. <laughs> we have to deal with these motherfuckers daily. I got to deal with strangers that are adults who can't read a fucking chalkboard. Every question they ask, I, I lose my shit now there. I don't even fucking care. I just tell Great. them. I'm just like, did you not see the chalkboard? How I was, old are I you? was literally just about to ask you, how do you, how do you deal with all the... I hired nice people so I don't have to talk to them. You know, they we, ask stupid questions, and I answer them accordingly. For folks who don't know, what is Kimski? What do you serve, and why is it so fucking great and getting all this great press? It's a Korean-Polish street food spot. It's on the south side of Chicago. It's attached to a neighborhood staple bar called Maria's Packaged Goods and Community Bar. Which I would like to state, uh, Maria's ranked number... Oh, and number one in Chicago Magazine. Number one for Chicago for best yeah. bar in Chicago. Yeah. And then number ninth in USA Today for In the Nation. Get the fuck out. When? Uh, last year, because you guys used, uh, they used my photo that I shot of it for. Oh no, shit! That's amazing. So I was like, "Fuck yeah, I'm in USA." You know what's crazy? They USA Today quoted me for doing a mural inside the Taco Bell, the the boozy Taco Bell in Wicker Park. Oh, you did the mural in there? Yeah, that was me. Killer. Yeah, not fucking nuts. So Kimski is a street food spot, and uh, it's a counter service place. We service Maria's, and we use Maria's as a as our dining room. There's no servers. I want it to be affordable, portable. It's hard to explain. So I do want to be conscious about our waste of our food that we're serving, our ingredients. So it is like a street food spot with ethics and morals. What are some of your standards? Uh, Maria's used to host a industry night on Mondays where if you bought a drink, you would get a, a shitty Polish in a bun and some jarred kimchi you could just put on the top of it and just, you know, for the summer, you know, something to eat real quick and cheap. And that took off into chefs getting invited to make their own kimchi, maybe make your own mustard, bring your own polishes, that kind of shit. How long ago? Years ago. They've been doing this for years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then I was one of the people that kind of came in and was like, I, I can make my own kimchi, you know, like just I love this bar. Give me a reason to come on a Monday. After that, I I did a I made my own Polish, I made my own kimchi. I had a friend make mustard for me, and I was like, "Let me plate it like an Alinea style thing." As a joke, as a patio thing on a paper plate, I cut the <laughs> the standard standard being the Polish into like these diamond shapes, and I would plate it real fancy, and then put the kimchi like right in the middle, and then do a swipe of the fucking mustard, and add some <laughs> greens, and you know, do all this shit. A, because there were a bunch of fucking freeloaders, and I would limit their fucking freeloading by plating it individually for them. And B, because it's fucking hilarious to me. Juxtaposition of that fine dining world. And then the owners were like, well, actually, expanding, do you want to run the restaurant? And I was like, fuck no. <laughs> Where were you working at the time then? I was a freelancer. I, so freelan oh, actually, no, I was at Whole Foods Market. The fine folks over there. I did a mural for them, and then they asked me if I wanted to be a sign maker. So uh, you were doing art for Whole Foods, not yeah. cooking for Whole Foods. I eventually did cooking for Whole Foods okay. because they had a demo kitchen. And their demo kitchen chef at the time was a piece of shit who couldn't <laughs> handle certain like curveballs, such as getting too many customers. It's like, bitch, Wait, you can get too many customers? Yeah. How do you do that? Well, here's the thing, though. You get too many customers, A, you can freak out and be like, no, this is this isn't what we I signed up for. Or B... Go downstairs and get some more food. We're in a grocery store. Get your fucking ingredients. Shut the fuck up. Why would you ever freak out about that? That's a great problem to have. You know, to me, I'm just like, oh, okay, we have more people. Just, I'll just get some more food downstairs because 
there's a literally a humongous grocery store I could just yeah. get ingredients from for free to promote the store. Again, it's my hustle mentality. I come from this world, late 90s, where I want to make money and just like use utilize anything I can. So I just threw myself into the fire mm-hmm. and I made it work for Whole Foods, for the marketers. Brought my charming attitude of calling people out. Keeping it real. Keeping it real, I guess. I mean, if you want to call it keeping it real, this is more like, you're fucking dumb. Don't ask dumb questions. You're a fucking adult. Why would you ask that? You know, you have fucking Google. These phones do amazing things. And then after screwing around at Maria's, they're like, um, yeah. we're going to expand. Will you be our chef? And actually, and I said no three times because I loved my life as a freelancer. Cause I, I had this weird like up and downs with this city being, I always equate the city to being like, a really convenient ex-lover type where they give you their all and you feel great about living here. When you're like just fed up and you're like, fuck this place, I'm done with you. They offer like one little mm-hmm. one little nugget. Mm-hmm. And you're like, motherfucker, that's just enough for me to stay. I was getting paid really well to do signage work outside of Whole Foods. And I, again, it was my hustle mentality. Like sure. I did pop-ups. I worked at other friends' restaurants more for the passion of it because I just wanted to get more experience. I went to culinary school, actually. And I did, at the same time I was doing culinary school, I still did murals. I still did signage work. I, you know, it's all about scheduling. I, I took DJ gigs. I was a DJ for, I had weekly residencies around the city that paid my bills. Okay. Like Streetside Cafe, which is now Scott Flaw. Yeah. The old Lava Lounge back on, on Damon. We played every Saturday there. We played at Dark Room on Chicago, which is now some other shitty Irish bar. Do you DJ at Maria's now? You know what? Maria sucks at paying DJs, so no. I play at Sportsman's Club, which is an industry spot, first Mondays. I got booked to play a lot of weddings, and they pay pretty well. I did a good job. You know, We do Dawson's uh, New Year's Eve party. It's great because every time I take these gigs, if I take an art gig or a DJ gig, they don't know that I cook on the side. It's not even a side. Sorry, it's not on the side. But you also I spend cook. all my fucking time I was about to say, I'm like, in that your, your main gig Right. Now? So they don't know that I do that. When I DJ, they're like, you don't do art. You don't fucking cook. But if I mention it to them, they're like, they just always dismiss it because they don't know that I'm reputable in both fields. Does the foodie scene know that you DJ and, and no. do graffiti? And it's great. So you've got multiple lives. I don't want to stick out. You know, I want things that I do to stick out, but I want it to be a team effort. Wait, but yeah. that's a very Chicago attitude to have, which is why like, I will never be rich. I could go to LA and just yeah. be like, my work ethic will fucking crush it in any other city. I believe, and maybe this is to your credit, talking about the Chicago mentality, your output should do the talking. And if your output is good, then the cream rises to the top. Thing is, I'm a I'm a self-deprecating motherfucker. So Well, you're always gonna be your own worst critic. Isn't that just it for any discipline? For any discipline that's creative. Sure. Um but I hate to bring this up again. Fucking millennials, there it's not the case. I come from a certain generation where and a certain like background where my parents were always like, there's always someone better. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. 100% true. Someone's better than me at cooking, DJing, and painting. I fully accept it. Now, if with that said, I'm never going to be satisfied 100% at where I'm at. And I shouldn't be. And some kids are. They think they've reached a fucking oh, pinnacle. Yeah. How do you live your life like that? You, do you realize I can crush you? At anything you do right now, I will crush you. If, and, and if it's a point of pride for me, I will learn whatever the fucking discipline you're doing that you think you've reached the top of, and I will fucking crush you because I'm yeah. a small man. Whether you're a millennial or whether you're 
somebody, name anybody, but everybody has a number, right? Somebody's yeah. somebody's number is where they are in life. Somebody's number is like 10 million, 20 million. The people that I find to be the most successful are the people that don't have a number. And those people are just constantly driven, right? And so we look at them. You look at a, a Bill Gates or you look at a Warren Buffett or you look at name some great chef that you think is doing it ethically and is like and hardworking. Those people don't have a number. All they're doing is they're just trying to keep raising their own bar. They're in their own lane. And then the money money is just going to come flowing in or the accolades or whatever it is. I find that people that that have no limit or have no number are the ones that just keep striving and keep doing. And you're absolutely right on that. And it's funny because I gave a talk to a bunch of teenagers once. I catered their event. It was, uh, I have a good friend, Kevin Koble, amazing poet, slam poet, Mm -hmm. fucking gangster ass motherfucker. Jewish as a fucking kosher salt box on a yarmulke and stuffed inside a rabbi's ass. Amazing fucking poet. He's a good friend of mine. He knows how hard we work together, blah, blah, blah. Amazingly positive person. He asked me to speak to one of his uh, workshops Mm -hmm. of kids from all over recently in Bridgeport. I catered the event. He wanted to showcase like, oh, you know, this guy does multiple Multiple disciplines. And... He asked me to speak. I'm like, are you sure you want me to speak to these fucking kids? Like, I don't think you know. I'm pretty fucking jaded and bitter at this point. He's like, no, I want them to hear what you have to say. I'm like, you got it. First fucking thing I said, you guys all suck. <laughs> I quoted uh, a book I read called Bomb the Suburbs back in the day. It was like a, it was like a zine type thing. And the first fucking thing, it was like a hip-hop yeah. based book journal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I quoted William Upsky. And it said, you suck until further notice. You know, that struck a chord with me even when I was 14. You suck until someone tells you that, until strangers say, like, that shit's dope. And that's how it should be. If you're going to put forth your work out there for the world, you got to expect criticism. No doubt. You're going to get some fucking, of course, accolades or, like, compliments. But how genuine are they, really? Mm -hmm. And I told these kids with social media now, like, you can't buy into people that are going to give you a thumbs up emoji. Or like, that's amazing, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation point. It's like, that's a picture of your dog. (laughs) What's so amazing about it? Right, right. Like, my advice was like, you kids fucking aren't good at your jobs right now because you don't have a job at your passion. However, you will get there with hard work. And that's something that's been constant to the beginning of time. It's hard work equates to good output eventually. And that kind of ties in with like, you know, you should never be satisfied at any point in your life with, you know, especially if you're striving for greatness. I'm still catching up to like 20 year olds that that just started graffiti that have access to amazing tools now. Whereas I had to make do with shitty spray paint back in the day. Right. Shitty caps and no masks. (laughs) These kids now have over 40 spray tips, over 15 brands of spray paint from all over the world. And walls they could practice on constantly. I have to compete with that. Right. So I'm copying fucking 20-year-olds, their techniques. Just so I could be like, oh, okay, so it's the side spray. <laughs> oh, shit. That's how you get that good fade. And that applies to any discipline. When you're trying to be creative and show your passion to the world, you know, it's not a formula. This is what I do. Quote, unquote. This is me now. <laughs> you know what I mean? You mentioned the tagging and, like, following these young kids that are good because they have good equipment. This is their craft, and they know it. From a chef and a cuisine perspective, who are you looking at in the city? And you're like, damn, 
that was fucking amazing. Fuck. I mean, all of them. I mean, I, every, every good meal that I have, I'm just constantly just like, man, I should quit, honestly. Whose <laughs> right. Who's work have you enjoyed recently? Graffiti, or in this case, let's stick with food. Food, sure. yeah. Food. Who kicked ass, and why did they kick ass? Shit, honestly, like, one of the meals that stick out was Oriole. Uh, Noah is, I ate his food at Senza, and it was amazing because Senza was in Lakeview. And Lakeview isn't known for fine dining, which is probably why they closed because they didn't support it because that neighborhood sucks. But I'm glad it closed on because it, it gave him time to travel with mm-hmm. his wife and really take their time and open Oriole. And that place fucking blew my mind. Where's Oriole? Uh, it's over in the West Loop, right behind Money Gun. It's a tasting menu. Uh, it was like, I think, 12 courses. Damn. Uh, him and Jeannie Kwan just fucking, like, I went there dressed like this from work, after work. In a fine dining establishment, I was surrounded by people in blazers. Fucking, you know, the gentleman is wearing black jeans and a black. <laughs> this t-shirt is my outfit every fucking day. I do change my shirts. Oh, so you, and I you, do shower. You shop at the house of Hank. Free T-shirts. That's yeah, two more. Sure. So uh, Oriole was great. It's it was a classic tasting menu in the sense of you know they carefully crafted a theme. It was classic in the sense of like you got these twelve. Really super meticulous, well-crafted, one or two bite type things. Every single course was different. They did a, a cocktail pairing or a beer pairing. They did both for us. Uh, I went there with a good friend of his. And I, I've known Noah for a little bit. I met him throughout here and there. You know, it's incestuous, the food world. Yeah, sure. I'm a little biased because they took care of us really well. But I saw them taking care of everyone else really well. Our experience really wasn't that much different from the table sitting next to us who were like an 80-year-old couple that heard about you know the, their baby views. <laughs> it, it restored my faith in tasting menus again because I feel like tasting menus, a lot of tasting menus can be kind of the same and you know they kind of like run a gambit of like overthinking. And I feel like everything was very well balanced and everything was just, just so fucking meticulous and spot on. Where else? Uh, Hanbun, the Korean restaurant in Westmont. Westmont, Illinois. It's Suburbs. Suburb. I read about this place a while ago in the winter. Great reviews on the down low, actually. You know, I lost faith in good Korean food in the city. I grew up here, and I the Korean restaurants that are still present today completely different from when I grew up here as a kid. And Hanbun, you know, it's uh, a young couple. <laughs> They're sandwiched between two Chinese restaurants in a strip mall. They have over a hundred fucking items, the Chinese menus. They have twelve total. I typically am wary of delis or corner mom and pop shops where the traffic ain't bustling, but the menu's got seventy five fucking items on yeah, it. No, I'm like, how do I'm you keep cool all of that supply? Frozen. Freezer. I mean, I immediately go straight to kitchen nightmares. Like I maybe I watch too many episodes. I'm like, there's a mouse in that freezer. <laughs> Oh. Probably. I mean, it's ratatouille, you know? It's not a mouse. It's a fucking... Rat. It's a French-trained chef rat. It's Ooh. all frozen. It's all just frozen, honestly. When you see 85 oh. fucking menu items on a Chinese menu, you're like, oh, those scallops must be fresh. No, of course not. Why the fuck are you in a strip mall? So these guys have like 13 menu items. I went with a friend who equally loves food and appreciates the, the adventure. We ordered almost everything on the menu, and everything tasted fresh as fuck. We were just talking about the Chinese menu, like it's you could taste how frozen it is and how like not fresh it is. I feel like they just did a good job. They care as much about the food as 
any five-star fucking restaurant right, would, right. but they're in a kiosk in a fucking strip mall, which is why they do the fucking, the Chunyuk series, which is translated to dinner in Korean. Classically trained Dave and his fiance, Jenny. They're like the most adorable fucking couple. Sickens me how adorable they are. Bastards. I bought them a Dark Lord for the beer aficionados. Yeah. And you immediately knew that I was from the restaurant world. Who else would fucking bring a $100 bottle of beer from like three years ago? Sure, right? right. And then we got talking, and he's just, he's just a really fucking nice dude, you know? I mean, that didn't really add anything to the food because the food was excellent to begin with. And then Entente over in Lincoln Park, uh, Brian Fisher's restaurant. Brian, who used to be the chef de cuisine at Schwa, opened up his own spot with Ty, uh, who owns Small Bar and uh, Arami. It used to be the old Ani space on Lincoln Avenue in a kind of a dead zone of the city. That place is amazing. Taster menu style food, but a la carte. I actually painted some meals for them too in there. Hank and I need to, we need to go have a meal with you. I don't think you want to. Like, I don't think you know. Are you a critic when you go eat? No, I'm not at all. Are you just like, I'll eat What happens if I, if we do go out and eat, you will get sent out food. We went to Royster. That's on top five list as well. We got sent the whole fucking menu. Great. No, it sounds great. You got to eat all of it. Yes, you do. Because it's rude. Now, how do you think you would feel if you ate Six pounds of food. Uh, I'd want to die. Yeah. That's, you, so we wait, ended the saying, night with foie gras, fucking Snicker oh, bars. Oh. That, that was the last dessert. That's it was heavy. amazing. Sounds After a little heavy. After eating every single pasta dish, a whole duck, A5 Wagyu steak, a whole chicken fried, and a Jesus whole chicken grilled. Good Lord. And all the appetizers. And beer. If I see friends come to my restaurant, I'm going to fucking bombard them with food. Michael Simmons, Cafe Mary Jean. He mm-hmm. used to work at Rootstock. He came in uh, during his vacation time. I was just so grateful to see him and his friends there and his wife. And I was like, awesome. I'm so glad you made it out. I fucking love your food. Respect the hell out of you guys. I made a breakfast burrito for him on the spot just for the fuck of it. He was like, I ate all the food, but that's the shit that stuck out. That shit was dope. I'm like, it was actually really good. And they ate the full menu almost, but they still ate the burrito. You, yeah. you just do it. It's painful sometimes. Like, if I eat at a friend's restaurant, they're going to bombard you with food. And it's overbearing sometimes. Yeah. And it's like not good for your health, honestly. And it's fun. I'm not complaining. It's just like it is a lot to take in sometimes. The cool thing about what you've got is like if I want to have, based on your portion sizes, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I want to have like a, a street side like snack or like just a really good bite, with a good beer, you're good. If you want to really eat, you can easily polish off two oh, items on there. Absolutely. And what I like doing is like going with like two people and like or, and getting like three or four things, and we just all just trade around and whatnot. Because most of your stuff, pierogies and t- everything else, you can just like really compartmentalize and share with everyone. Then that's what the menu is designed great. for. It's meant I for sharing. That. Like I I know like the convenience of having a street food spot available. It's like you pay for the price a little bit, you know, sure. and, uh, and you recognize that. When you when you order delivery, you pay that delivery fee and the service fee because you're like, this is convenient to me and it's fine. And I just, it's hard to ingrain this um, idea into people's heads, you know, in a new neighborhood that's not used to this kind of service. And it's one of those things where we're less than a year old still. We're like almost eight and a half, nine months in. And we've learned a lot, obviously, from when we first opened. You were there the first week. You saw the stress on... And terror on all of our faces. It. You still had it, though. Yeah. Or again, this is all cumulative sure. of stage managing. You know, running pop-ups, helping flesh for food, together. doing pop-ups, and running running employees for catering jobs. 
I used to have a thing called mandatory meeting at catering jobs. You know what that meant? You have to I go would, to the fucking meeting. No. You had to go to a cooler. We all did shots of Buffalo Trace that I bought because I was like, this job sucks, doesn't it? I get you. Let's all do shots and then go back to our jobs. It's that mentality of like knowing, again, it's that team. It's also the mentality, correct me if I'm wrong, of just work hard, play hard. Like yeah. you're going to work your ass off. You're going to have integrity, but there is something to be said to be able to look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day for doing an honest day's work. And then once that's over and you've put in all your hours, let's rock. That comes with the territory, I think, from any field, right? Sure. I mean, you work a long day. Like, all you want to do is like decompress and just kind of, you know, let loose a little. You know, we all go through our phases, of course. When we first opened, I actually didn't party at all because I was just too exhausted. I'd have to be back at the restaurant by nine. Tony, the sous chef, you know, God bless his heart. He worked so fucking hard. He slept on the he slept on the floor once at uh, the restaurant. Yeah, and he without a shirt. I slept in the restaurant before. I slept in the bathroom before during service because it was just too hot in there. I was like, I need a fucking break. Shit happens, you know. But like weird mentality, like it's just food at the end of the day, right? You know, you never think about what this actually is. Like we treat it like it's some. They compare the kitchen to a fucking army. Yeah. I'm like, I would never do that because an army is actual real serious work. You're fighting for freedoms. Whereas we're just feeding people. And I get that it's a business and that's serious. But at the end of the day, it's like, we're not really killing anyone. And it's like, if you take it that serious, maybe because I come from different disciplines and different fields. And that's my perspective on things. I never really took anything so serious because like at the end of the day, it's not going to kill anyone if you run out of sausages. Mm. And it sounds stupid to take that so serious. Some do, like, oh, my yeah. God, we're, on a, we're out of fries. What the fuck? It's that's, like That's it's, reality TV. It's just, no, it's restaurants in general. Like Some people take it so seriously. Yeah, sure. I've worked at places where people are like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, we're out of this. I, I've been there where I was the consumer being like really angry about something. And then I always, you always have to take a step back and be like, well, is it really that serious? Like, I didn't get the one garnish that they promised on the fucking menu. Yeah. It's like, you take a step back and you're like, well, I'm going to shit this out anyways in the morning after a good cup of coffee. And I'm going to eat another dinner because it's another day. And I have to fucking eat dinner because I'm a fat fucking American. And I need to eat. So where do you want to see this go? I want to see it. Uh, I want to quit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to be able to see it do its own thing. I do have to take myself out of the equation eventually. I will fucking die. I still love painting. I still love doing my other fucking passions. I still get hit up to do commissions. I still do murals. I want to be able to take time to do those things. Of course, I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to the job, of course, because I'm prideful of the place and I'm also ultra concerned about my employees that they have a place to fucking be able to come to work and make an income. Like, that's important to me. Because I know they've been mistreated at a lot of restaurants in the city. I've been mistreated and underpaid. They've been mistreated and underpaid. I'm not going to be that guy learning from that shit. If you fuck up, I just fire you. That's it. But they'll know why they got fired. Not on some like, sorry, labor short this month. Fuck you. See you later. It's like, you fucking came in drunk. You're done. Sorry. And I give you, I'll give you a couple of chances because it's not a big place. But I want everyone to be treated fairly. Like I find it interesting <laughs> that you say, I, I, I ask you kind of where you want to take the restaurant and where you see it going. And not once did you mention 
food you mentioned i want to take it's care of people my, i want to take oh, care yeah. of my people Art. i want to make sure that they are well taken yeah. care of and they have some place to go that they're held accountable but i mean i care about customers of course and i care about the food at the end of the day most leaders will tell you that their job is like is servant is to take care of their people so their people can do the best job possible that's strikes a chord because i know a lot of people got burned in the past and yeah. they've been treated misfairly uh, they've been, you know, they come from a world where like they're used to getting taken advantage of, and that's not okay with me. You know, I've kind of taken advantage of DJing art wise. Oh yeah, we'll pay you an exposure. You have decades of multi disciplines behind you between your graffiti, between food, and your DJing. You constantly have different channels of a creative output where you are manipulating one's senses via visually, taste, or sound, and so with that. Have you, especially in recent history, with your success with Kimsky, have you had any accolades or any praise come your way that can make you finally take a deep breath and go, you know, I think I might actually be doing something okay? Because Kimsky's gotten a lot of good press. You're plenty busy as an artist. So when can you tell yourself, you know what, I think I, think I got this? Or are you always hungry? I'll always stay hungry, no matter what, till my death. But one of my biggest art accolades, honestly, you know, I did a solo show at Chicago Trueborn last year, exactly almost one year ago, actually, right before Kimsky opened. The first time I ever went to Schwa, I took my friend for dinner there. She's never been there. We've been talking about it for, you know, we knew about this fucking mysterious place for years. It's the, it's like this, it's it's like when Marsalis Wallace opens up the fucking briefcase, you're like, see this gold, you're like, that's Schwa. People keep talking about it. It's impossible to get a reservation. You hear stories about this fucking place, right? I finally scored a reservation there somehow for the first time ever. And then I always hear people, you know, bringing the staff beer, booze. You know, that's like so typical. Everyone brings them booze and beer. I brought them a painted piece of mine. So I thought I'd combine two things. I was like, you know what? I'm going to paint them a specific piece that says schwa graffiti-wise. You know, I... I don't know what to expect. I've never fucking been there before in my life. No, that's pretty cool. Life-changing experience. You know, I can't wait for to eat this. Fucking go there. <laughs> and then never met any of these fucking people in my life. We sit down and I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, this is, this is for the kitchen. You know, you, got, you, could, you guys could throw it away. I don't really care. I just didn't want to bring you booze because everyone brings you liquor. You know, Chef was there that day. It was uh, Chef Michael Carlson who was wearing Adidas track pants and a T-shirt in the middle of his service. He fucking stopped. Was like, "What the fuck?" I was like, "Oh shit, we gotta go." I think, I think I should have bought him booze. He's like, "Who did this?" His brother, who was our server, pointed to us, and I was like, "We gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "My nigga." I was like, "Oh, we gotta go for sure. We're out of here." He's like, "Thank you for this. This is fucking amazing." What the fuck? I was like, "Huh." I'm so sorry. Like, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do to offend you? Why are you so mad at me? He's like, he fucking literally gave me a hug. He never met me before in my life. And then he hung the bath. He hung the piece in the bathroom, the cool. one bathroom in Schwa, which is like sacred, honestly, because you, you have to go past the kitchen to use the bathroom. It's yeah. a BYOB place, and it's hung there for almost five years, oh, four years ago, three years ago. I don't even know how how long ago it was. But because of that, I've met so many great cooks out of that restaurant cool. that got me in, and I was able to establish a relationship with them. That relationship extended towards so many other friendships, and that really like struck a chord with me, like with food wise, art wise, and DJ wise, because they all supported 
each other in this creative field. Seriously, to this day, like Brian and I still hang out. We kick it. We drink. We do drugs. We fucking eat, eat out together. And he's met a lot of my mutual friends. It doesn't matter if you're into food or not. It expanded so many boundaries and creative fields. And it's just like, I just called a new chef de cuisine at Schwa and made a reservation for one of my friends for her birthday. And usually you have to fucking call and call and call and call and call. No one picks up the phone there. That's their fucking gimmick. Not because they're like, fuck these people, because they just don't care to pick up the phone because they're always booked. But like the fact that I can do that, I've brought multiple people there before. I bought them a piece pizza, pretended I was a delivery driver during service, That's and, great. and run That's pizza great. to them and drink other people's booze there. It's like, this is a special place, you know? I think that was kind of like the epitome of everything culminating together. It was fantastic. Yeah. So the moral of the story is always come bearing gifts. Unique gifts. Unique gifts. Gifts that I think people will appreciate. I didn't know this would strike a chord. It was something that they appreciated creative-wise. Other artists would be offended that their artwork's hanging in the bathroom. I was honored. I was like, that is the best way to respect my artwork, actually. You're a fixture to the real estate, to a great joint. That's a sign of respect. That was one of the best honors I've had out of the 20 years I've been doing art here in the city. <laughs> so your response then is to the, the one most validating moment to your craft. Chef Carlson is the shit. Cool. He's amazing. I dig that. <laughs>